When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In going to China, I am asking myself, am I running away from something? Am I leaving what with inflation, incivility in the press, and Watergate, and all the ugliness? Am I taking the easy way out? The answer, I think, is no, because of the intrigue and fascination that is China. I think it is an important assignment. It is what I want to do. It is what I told the president I want to do. And all in all, in spite of the great warnings of isolation, I think it is right, at least for now. Welcome, dear listener, to a special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. If you are listening to this episode, then it means that the 41st President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, has passed away. I decided around the time that his wife, former First Lady Barbara Bush, passed away in April 2018, that I wanted to do a tribute episode for presidents who pass away, even if we have not gotten to them yet in our narrative. As the idea came to mind, I had to consider exactly what kind of tribute episode I wanted to make. Rather than a complete rundown of the president's life, I decided that I wanted to use this episode to highlight an aspect of George Bush's life that does not receive quite as much attention as other periods of his lengthy career, but which I feel was key to his development and the road to his presidency. On August 9, 1974, Richard Milhouse Nixon resigned the presidency, and Gerald R. Ford assumed the office. At that point, George Bush was serving as chairman of the Republican National Committee, and he and his wife Barbara were in the East Room for Nixon's farewell speech, followed by Ford's swearing in. One of the first tasks before the new president was to nominate a new vice president, and Bush was in the running for that position. He had sought the second spot on the ticket previously and was being talked up again. Bush noted in his diary that, quote, Deep down inside, I think maybe it should work this time. I have that inner feeling that it will finally abort. I hope not. Another defeat in this line is going to be tough, but then it is awful egotistical to think I should be selected. Ford and Bush met in the Oval Office on August 11th to discuss Bush's experience and the possibility of his nomination. However, on the 18th, an article appeared in Newsweek, quote, that the Nixon White House had funneled about $100,000 from a secret fund called the Townhouse Operation to Bush's 1970 Senate campaign. Whether it was for this reason or not, on August 20th, word would come that Nelson Rockefeller had been chosen for the vice presidential nomination, and Ford would telephone Bush personally to give him the news prior to its public release. Despite the president's assurances that, quote, it was a very hard call, Bush was disappointed. The two would meet in the Oval Office two days later with Ford asking him, quote, what do you want? A sign of respect for someone whom he had just had to deny his primary aim. A number of possibilities came up in the meeting, including Secretary of Commerce, U.S. Ambassador to Britain, White House Chief of Staff, and U.S. Ambassador to France. 
but they came back at numerous points in the discussion to one possibility, U.S. envoy to China. Bush asserted that some way or other he wanted to be involved in foreign affairs so that he could possibly become Secretary of State on down the line, possibly in 1980. On August 26th, President Ford called Bush and offered him the post in China, which Bush, after asking once more about the position of Chief of Staff, accepted. This is one of those points where one has to wonder how much the townhouse operation allegation came into play with Ford's decision. In terms of U.S. foreign policy at the time, China was a remote posting. Indeed, as we didn't have full diplomatic relations with China at the time, Bush would not be a full ambassador, just a liaison officer. He would not be closely connected to a new administration desperately seeking to rid itself of any air of impropriety in post-Watergate America. Bush would ultimately be exonerated of any allegations of wrongdoing in the townhouse operation by the Watergate special prosecutor. But at the time, it's easy to imagine that the Ford administration would be eager to hold him at arm's length just in case. The decision would be made public on September 4th, with Mary Louise Smith being announced as Bush's replacement at the RNC, and the Bushes would begin to make preparations to move to Beijing. Besides just the move to another part of the globe, this new posting would have an effect on the dynamics of the Bush marriage. In her memoirs, Barbara Bush wrote that when she first heard of the idea, quote, to say that I was speechless is an understatement. However, that shock evaporated, and quote, the more George talked, the more excited I got. I missed being with George. He had traveled a great deal as RNC chairman, and the thought of having him to myself sounded like the answer to my prayers. Their youngest child, Doro, was sent off to boarding school. The Bushes received briefings from the State Department, with Barbara receiving a basic primer on Mandarin from the State Department's foreign language school, and in late October 1974, they were bound for China. The U.S. Liaison Office in Beijing had been opened the year prior by David Bruce, so this was still a rather unknown landscape that Bush was entering into. China, while a rising power in terms of science and technology, was still dealing with the consequences of the Cultural Revolution that Chairman Mao Zedong had proclaimed in 1966, quote, to destroy the Communist Party's incipient bureaucratism and restore its revolutionary nature. This revolutionary nature had kept communist China mostly isolated from the other nations of the world for decades. However, signs of a willingness to at least discuss change had been bubbling to the surface. The Nixon administration had begun to send a, quote, few low-level signals of interest in opening diplomatic discussions with China in 1969. But it wasn't until the following year that the Chinese responded. As his departure neared, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger told Bush that, quote, there'll be some substantive work from time to time, but for the most part, you'll be bored beyond belief. Being bored, though, was not something that George Bush did. He approached his new position with an inquisitive mind and took seriously his responsibility, quote, to discern what was unfolding inside the opaque world of Chinese politics. It was going to be no cakewalk, though. After his arrival in Beijing, the ambassador from Nepal shared with Bush, quote, I've been here 10 years, and I think I actually know less about the Chinese than when I arrived. Bush quickly identified one key issue impeding progress and gaining understanding. The State Department had instructed Bush's predecessor, quote, not to attend the different embassies' National Day celebrations. The reason given was that, as the U.S. representative to China was not an official ambassador, in terms of protocol at official functions, the U.S. representative would be one of the last recognized. 
And that did not, to the State Department, befit the nation's status in the world arena. However, Bush knew just how important personal diplomacy was, and so he ignored the instructions and began attending so that he could get to know his fellow diplomats, as well as take advantage of, quote, the opportunity to mingle with Chinese diplomats and officials. George and Barbara would also throw themselves into life in Beijing by largely avoiding the official chauffeured car of the mission for getting around, and instead, on their first full day in the country, bought two bicycles so that they could join in with the crowds of Chinese citizens who peddled their way around the capital. The Bushes quickly attracted notice around town as they started to get the lay of the land. They would go through shops and markets, talk with the household staff, play tennis with Chinese citizens at the International Club, and always keep their eyes and ears open. Barbara recounted in her memoirs that, quote, the Chinese were bombarded with propaganda wherever they looked and wherever they went, on billboards, trains, parks, and often on the streets. A loud, shrill voice would come bellowing out of speakers placed high on light posts, exhorting people to work hard for the chairman. They would also continue to learn Mandarin after their arrival and would invite Chinese officials over often to their residence. Though George had been told upon his arrival that the Chinese only accepted one out of ten invitations, he kept finding reasons to send out invitations so that he could maximize the opportunities to engage in personal diplomacy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Just over a month after their arrival, the Bushes welcomed Secretary of State Kissinger to China as he arrived following a Soviet-American summit in Vladivostok. Having this opportunity to observe the Secretary of State closely, Bush found himself concerned. As he wrote on November 26th, quote, People on his staff are scared to death of Kissinger. It is unbelievable. Too much so. There's too much entourage feeling. Too much kind of turmoil. Great respect for the man and his accomplishments, and yet concern about some of the trappings and some of the ways of handling people. Pressures on him are immense, and the accomplishments immense, so one forgives the eccentric things but there is a certain graciousness that is lacking. Bush would also find reason to criticize the administration's approach to China when Chinese officials banned certain journalists from a press preview for an upcoming Chinese archaeological exhibit in Washington. Though Bush felt that this was the perfect opportunity to stand up for the American principle of freedom of the press, especially since the Chinese were seeking to put limits on the press on American soil, the U.S. officials instead canceled the press preview. Bush expressed his opinion in his diary that, quote, we must not capitulate on matters this fundamental in the United States. Matters beyond diplomacy were under discussion during Kissinger's visit as well. In a private talk towards the end of the visit, Kissinger asked Bush about his plans for the future and how long Bush planned to stay in China. Bush replied honestly that he wasn't sure and was more focused on, quote, doing a good job here. Kissinger shared that he felt this posting was a good experience for Bush to learn about foreign policy and that, while most likely the Republican presidential ticket was settled for 1976, 
Bush should consider a presidential run in 1980. George would have a break to reflect upon this in the following month as Barbara went back to Washington to spend Christmas with their children. It would be the first Christmas since their wedding that they would be apart from one another. So unbeknownst to his wife, Bush had secretly ridden and called friends back in the States asking them to check in on Barbara and spend time with her during her visit to keep her from being sad about their not being together for the holidays. He even got the Secretary of the Interior, Rogers Morden, to have lunch with her. While making plans to keep Barbara's spirits up, George had also ensured that he wouldn't be alone for Christmas either. His mother, Dorothy Bush, flew over in the third week of December. Bush wrote in his diary the day before her arrival that, quote, I have that kind of high school excitement, first vacation feeling. On Christmas Eve, they would attend evening services at the small church above the Bible Society building in Beijing that George and Barbara had been attending since their arrival. The congregation was small, as described by Barbara in her memoirs, quote, maybe 20 in attendance on a good day. But Bush would remark of the Chinese Christmas Eve service, quote, strange feeling, missing one's own family, but feeling close. A couple of days after Christmas, Bush would host the Chinese foreign minister Xiao Guanhua for dinner at his residence. As noted by historian Jeffrey Engel, quote, the dinner must be considered not only a high point of his, i.e. Bush's tenure in Beijing, but also a signature moment in his quest to personalize Sino-American relations. Bush would never achieve the kind of intimacy he sought with Chinese leaders, but this dinner would be as close as he would ever get to the kind of working relationship he so desperately longed to cultivate with Beijing's top policymakers. By the time he set off in mid-January to return to the U.S. for the first time since assuming his post at the liaison office in China, Bush felt that he had gathered enough information to speak with confidence on U.S.-Chinese relations in a cable back to Kissinger on February 15, 1975. From his viewpoint, despite press speculation that relations were getting worse, he felt that they were becoming more solid. He felt sure that rumors that the Chinese government was getting restless for action to be taken on the Taiwan situation were false. Quote, trade and exchanges are rocking along okay. Overall, the situation was good. As Bush reported, quote, in terms of day-to-day operations or treatment in Peking, we don't miss full embassy status. We see as much, if not more, of high Chinese officials as any other mission here. Unfortunately for Bush, a week of his stay in the U.S. would be spent in a hospital as he contracted a severe stomach ailment. Once he was well and preparing to go back, he consulted with Kissinger and the State Department staff before arriving back in China in the second week of February. Upon his return, he continued to reflect upon what he was learning about China, including his observation of Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, quote, escalating the thesis abroad now that the two superpowers will be at war that the superpowers are in chaos, that the world needs revolution, which he and other Chinese leaders are obviously doing to get third world attention and to be champions of the third world as opposed to the superpowers, though they know that they want the United States to remain strong. As he observed the Chinese, so too did he observe Americans in China, asserting that, quote, I'm concerned about some of the business types that come here. They seem to be the pushy middleman kind of approach. I hope they play it straight and honest and open with the Chinese. I worry about the lack of sensitivity towards the Chinese and some of these traders. He also reflected on the news that he was hearing from back home and the perception of the post-Watergate U.S. in the global landscape. He had noticed on his trip back, quote, 
the malaise, the tearing down of institutions that was occurring in America, and asserted that, quote, so much depends on our, i.e., Americans, own self-confidence in our ability to cope. If we project confusion and failure and discouragement, it will show up all around the world. He knew that a time of change was upon the world and spent that spring trying to get a sense of the situation and determine his role in it. On April 30th, 1975, Bush was attending the National Day reception at the Dutch Embassy in Beijing when he heard that the South Vietnamese government had surrendered and Saigon had fallen. He noted that three North Vietnamese men at the reception, quote, rushed happily out of the room at the news, and that, quote, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese embassies are bedecked in flags and having understandable celebrations. The fall of Saigon forced Bush, as it did many Americans, to start asking questions about what it all meant for the future of America. Bush, in his diary that day, asked, quote, where is our ideology? Where is our principle? What indeed do we stand for? These things must be made clear, and the American people must understand that as soon as America doesn't stand for something in the world, there is going to be a tremendous erosion of freedom. It is true. It is very true. And yet, it is awful hard to convince people of it at home, I'm sure. The fall of Saigon would prove to be a pivotal moment both in the history of Southeast Asia and in U.S. history. Little could anyone have imagined the full scope of the role that George Bush would play in redefining the United States in a new world order. Happier times would come in the late spring, early summer, when three of the Bush's children, Marvin, Neil, and Doro, arrived in Beijing for a visit. Doro would end up being baptized at the little church in Beijing during their stay, and in the process, according to Barbara Bush, quote, became the first American to be baptized in China since 1949. That summer would also see Bush plan an event for the diplomatic community that was decisively American. On June 27th, he sent an urgent memo to the State Department titled, quote, The Great Hot Dog Roll Crisis. The memo read as follows. One, there is not a hot dog roll to be found in China. Is there any way you could ship us 700 hot dog rolls for guaranteed delivery prior to July 4th? Two, we also need 100 large bags of potato chips in same shipment. One can only imagine the chuckle that the State Department employee who first received the message got from it. The crisis was thankfully averted, and Bush would write on the 4th that their celebration, quote, was a tremendous success. We all got out and worked on the roof on hanging up plastic banners, weighing them down with welding rods, setting tables, cooking hot dogs on charcoal. It all fell in place with the rain drizzling a little during the day, but clearing miraculously in time for a well-attended, perhaps 500 people, reception. Dogs, Miller beer, American cigarettes, a raffle, Coca-Cola, lots of loud music, John Denver style, and it was great. The Americans wore red, white, and blue. We had American flags around, and I'm confident it conveyed the right kind of impression about our country. Beyond the reception, though, George Bush was beginning to think about his home nation and his role in it. Historian Jeffrey Engel notes that, quote, It is difficult to read Bush's diary from the weeks of June and early July 1975 without sensing his growing frustration with this job and with his own limited place within Washington's decision-making circles. Bush was not the only one at that time thinking of the future. 
White House Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld that summer worked on preparing his thoughts on shaking up the Ford administration in preparation for the election coming up in 1976. In his study of George Bush's diary from his time in China, Engel concludes that while he was unable to find any direct evidence that Bush had been aware of any plans for him prior to November, it is easy to imagine that it may have been discussed when Bush reported back to Washington in late August. And indeed, quote, Bush's final diary entries while in China starting in July 1975 suggests some awareness that his time in the country was growing short. Starting in July, Bush grew more nostalgic in his entries, and he started referring to details of his life in China in the past tense. Whether he was planning on making a change himself or was aware that leaders in the administration were making preparations, it does seem like in his mind, Bush began closing the door on his tenure in China in July. He would be on hand, however, for a return visit by Kissinger to Beijing in October and a trip by President Ford himself in December. By the time of Ford's visit, though, Bush's next step was already known. Starting on October 22nd, Ford met with Rumsfeld and his deputy chief of staff, Dick Cheney, numerous times to discuss possible changes to the administration. Along with seeking a new running mate other than the current vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, and multiple moves in cabinet and key administration posts, Ford had also decided to replace William Colby as CIA director and the man he had picked for the post was none other than George Bush. On November 1st, while the Bushes were out riding their bicycles in Beijing, a telegram arrived from Secretary of State Kissinger informing George of Ford's intent to nominate him as head of the CIA. Now, at this point, the CIA was under harsh scrutiny from congressional hearings in both the Senate and the House into the agency's involvement in, quote, illegal covert operations, failed assassination plots against foreign leaders, and domestic spying, including on the anti-Vietnam War movement. The post would be an extreme challenge for Bush. And further, with Ford considering other VP candidates, the move to the CIA would effectively sideline Bush from consideration for the 1976 election cycle. Many over the years have said that this was a political move by Rumsfeld to get Bush out of the way and better position himself to be considered by Ford for the VP role. And indeed, even at the time, Bush wrote that he knew that the position was, quote, a graveyard for politics. But Rumsfeld denied in his own memoir decades later having any involvement in the decision besides presenting Bush as one of 23 possible candidates. Rumsfeld even made a special point of noting that Bush was not on his own personal shortlist for the post. Cheney later claimed that the original intent was to have Bush become Secretary of Commerce and for Elliot Richardson, then serving as U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, to become the new CIA director, and that at the last minute and without prompting by Rumsfeld or anyone else, Ford switched the names. Whatever the case may be, it is undeniable that the CIA was at this point in need of someone who could work to reestablish credibility in the agency, and Bush's good reputation and personal touch might just be what the doctor was calling for. Bush would ultimately accept the posting, and he would write to his children with the news, asserting that, quote, There is ugliness and turmoil swirling around the agency, obscuring its fundamental importance to our country. I feel I must try to help. As one of his last acts as the U.S. envoy to China, Bush would be on hand when Chairman Mao received Ford during his visit in December. Mao made a point of going over to Bush and saying that, quote, you've been promoted. 
then turned to Ford and told him that, quote, we hate to see him go. On December 10th, George and Barbara Bush set out from China to face confirmation hearings, a new position, and a future with many more twists and turns along the way. What does this journey through George Bush's tenure as U.S. envoy to China tell us about him? To me, it exemplifies his commitment to personal diplomacy in combination with an awareness of how the small details fit into a bigger picture. It shows a man who had been involved in an administration that came crashing down around him, trying to process the ramifications of it, both personally and as an American citizen. It shows a leap of faith that he would take time and again in his career into an uncertain role with the belief that he would ultimately succeed in it and that it would lead him forward. This time in George Herbert Walker Bush's life may not get quite as much of the focus as other parts of his career and public service, but in it we see the future president getting a better grasp of the global situation, including a firsthand understanding of a nation that, though it may not have figured too high in U.S. foreign policy of the time, would come to be one of the U.S.'s key trading partners and diplomatic priorities in the decades to come. We also see the man who would ascend to be chief executive evaluating other key leaders of the time and using their example to inform what kind of leader he wanted to be should the day come when he was in their shoes. Because of this, I hope you'll agree with me that George Bush's tenure as U.S. envoy to China has been worth a closer glance as it provides important insight to the life and legacy of the 41st president. To the family, friends, and loved ones of President Bush, I send you my heartfelt condolences. Following his example, may we all, as he said, continue working, quote, for a better America, for an endless, enduring dream, and a thousand points of light. Special thanks to Dan McClellan for providing the intro quote for this episode. If you have any questions or comments, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89 or on Instagram at presidencies podcast. Again, all one word. Sources used in this episode, as well as past episodes on the presidencies of George Washington and John Adams, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you all so much for listening and take care, dear friends. Until next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.